You take your Bible and turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Today's sermon is entitled, The Miraculous Incarnation. God in the flesh. You know, I call it the miraculous incarnation because it truly is a miracle. I mean, I think we've trivialized it in so many ways. We, um, even sometimes our attitude as we sing about the birth of Jesus Christ is very trivial, very light, very uh, meaning, almost meaningless. Um, but if you stop and think about the fact that any birth... Any birth, we re- would refer to it as miraculous. I mean, if you just think about the forming of a baby, that everything, everything must twine together in the twinkling of an eye perfectly within milliseconds of conception. In, in large part, everything is written. That child will either develop healthy or it will develop with serious defect, or it will not develop. I mean, if you just think about what goes on in a normal human birth, it's truly miraculous. And some of you have birthed babies, and some of us have watched that. We even have one among us who has delivered many. It never gets old, does it, Doc? Every time you see it, it just thrills your soul to see another baby gasp for life and cry out with those Uh, first screams of life. It's a miracle. But it doesn't compare to the miracle of the incarnation. That God, I want you to think about that, what that means, became flesh. No other tradition claims such bold truth. No religion dares to say God became flesh. It's such a miraculous idea. It's such such an idea beyond our comprehension that only God could posit such a fact. Only God could dream up such an idea. Only God can make this happen. Only God would dare say God became flesh. Truly, if anyone else said it, it would be blasphemous. John, the one dearest to our Lord in the Twelve, opens his discussion of the Gospel in a very unique way. It's one of the most poetic passages in the Greek. It's a beautiful passage. John 1, 1 through 14, and truly John 1, 1 through 18, and this this opening stanza of the Gospel When you read it, it just flows forward. In the King James, and I'm not going to read it from the King James, all of these and thous, I know, you struggle. But in the King James, I still um, sit in awe when I hear this passage read. Sometimes, again, like the trivialization of his birth, we can get caught up in these common passages and just read them with such poeticness and, and get all caught up in how beautiful it sounds and forget what it's saying. I want to read... John 1, 14 through 18, then I want to hopefully explain it in a way that you will never forget it, and you will take its truth, more than remembering a sermon, you will take the truth of this passage deep into your heart, that it becomes truly a miracle inside of you. 
John 1 verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me. And from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. In this idea of the incarnation, we are faced with the very rock of our salvation, the very cornerstone of our faith, that Jesus Christ became flesh and dwelt among us. First of all, we see in this passage that God moved, God moved into our world in the flesh. God moved in. I mean that in the most real term that uh, we can make it. He pitched His tent. He tabernacled. He moved into the neighborhood of humanity. And He lived with us. He dwelled with us. Verse 14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. First of all, I want us to think about what does it mean when He says the Word. Now, we're not going to, obviously, we're not going to cover the first 13 verses. But I want you to skip back up to verse 1 where He defines, John Himself defines what it means when He uses the term Word. In the beginning was the Word. The Lagos. It's not an idea. This is not John copying the Greek idea of the Logos. This is John really using Hebraic terms to talk about who God is. In the sense that God is a communicating God. From the very first page of the Bible, we know that he's drawing from the Hebrew, not Greek ideas. Because look what he says. In the beginning was the Word. What does that sound like to you? It should cause you, and it did cause all of the Hebrew people to remember the very beginning of the Torah. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So here John, in the opening passage of the gospel, is wanting to tie us back to Genesis. In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning, God created. How did He create? Did He fashion it with all of it with His hands? He fashioned one thing with His hands, man. But all other things, how did God make it? He spoke what? Words. Truly, everything in creation exists by the Word of God. It's by the spoken Word that God makes spins, orbits, galaxies. Thousands and thousands of galaxies. There are supposed by scientists now believe that in our universe there exists as many galaxies as stars in our galaxy. Think about that. No one could dare build a capsule to travel to the edge of the Milky Way. And God created for His own pleasure millions of galaxies. The universe, the size, the power exhibited in those orbiting spheres is spoken into existence by God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word is... The idea here 
is that he is a communicating God. God is not silent. He spoke to us. Jonathan Edwards, when thinking about God's triune being, told us maybe the most philosophically advanced idea of the Trinity to this day. He said, God truly existed in such a form and so pure an existence that he knew everything there was to know about himself in such a way that it projected forward into the person of the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, the Word. So God the Son, the Word, existed from the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God face to face. That word with is face to face. He was in communing relationship with God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. May we never make a hallmark slogan out of so passionate truth as this. Our existence is banked on this truth that God became flesh. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. I always marvel at the fact that John just so easily moves from what we think of as some idea to a person. He doesn't even hiccup. He gives no explanation. He just says, the word, he. He refers to it in the masculine singular tense. Why? Because the word is not some idea. It's not some nebulous thing out there that's undefined. For John and for us, the Word is defined. It is a male. His name became Jesus. He is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. It's not left to us to define what it means that the Word came near to us. God has defined it. John defines it for us in this opening passage of the Gospel. And the Word became flesh. It became, do you notice that word? Sometimes the little words we need to pay attention to in Scripture. The word became. It wasn't flesh, but it became flesh. This speaks to the preexistence of God the Son. Some wrongly believed that in in past, many heresies have covered the idea that, well, the the second person of the Trinity didn't always exist. He wasn't eternal. He came into existence, even in Isaiah 9. I don't want to press the Hebrew too far because I think we can be too technical. But it does, notice the passage that Anna Lee read to us. It doesn't say that it says that a child was born and what? A son was what? Given. Why? Because the child didn't exist prior to Mary's womb. But the son did. So he was given in that moment of conception. He was granted life in the womb. He was already living, and then he was placed into the womb. And how did that happen? Not through normal conception. We are to hold purely and completely to the virgin birth. The virgin birth is not an idea that should be doubted. It should not be an idea that's up for debate. uh, Truly, without it, all the rest of this sermon really doesn't matter. If Jesus is just another man, 
that was really good, if he was just a prophet, he's meaningless. But he's not. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, the Apostle Paul writes to us, and he writes to the church of Philippi, I have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Right there, Paul tells us that God the Son, the one who became flesh, the Word, is co-equal with God. But he did not hold on to that selfishly, stingy, as a stingy one, but he gave that up. He became flesh, Paul says in verse 7, made himself nothing. How far must he condescend to identify with us? Became flesh, the word became flesh. How does Paul describe that? He made himself nothing. You don't know the difference between God and man? It's the difference in everything and nothing. We're not even in the same class. We're not even worthy of comparison. Jesus didn't just kind of step down in some small way, but He became nothing. The Word became flesh. As Paul says, became nothing. He made Himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. Now this is key that you catch this. Notice in verse 6 that he says that he was found in the form of God. You see that in verse 6, Philippians 2 6. In Philippians 2 7, I want you to know, or excuse me, 2 8, I want you to notice that he came in human form. He's no less God than he is man, he's no more man than he is God. He is 100% God. And 100% man. You say, explain it. I don't have to explain it. God said it. I believe it. It's beyond our perception. It's not a math equation. It's a reality. God became flesh. The Word became flesh. He took on nothingness. He went from the Shekinah glory of the throne room of heaven where He had been with His Father from before the world's beginning. He stepped out of that glory, that co-equality with God, and didn't come in a palace as a grown man, but He became nothing in the womb of a little virgin. Mary. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This idea of the flesh is so important because it's how He dwelled with us. God is always, as they say, what's the big deal? God's always been here and God is with us. Yes, but not in the way He is now. Not in the way He is today. I want you to see it. Hold your place here and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Again, the Apostle defines for us just how Jesus came. Just who He is. And these passages that I'm going to to give further explanation, I do that because when you're talking about something like the Incarnation, I, I believe 
that the Bible speaks most plainly. Any novel thing I could say would fall far short and might be heretical. So I just want to stay on the text. And then I'm going to talk about some dead guys because they're safe too. Right? Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. I mean, excuse me, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men. The what? You at the text? What does it say, church? The man. The Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle Paul to write about Christ Jesus. In this place, he could have said anything. But the mediator between God and man, the mediator, is what? A man. You see that? He's fully man. He's no less than man. Now, it doesn't make him less than God, but he truly is a man. For God is one God, and there's one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Hebrews chapter 4. Turn with me just a few pages over in your Bible to Hebrews 4. Here the writer of Hebrews talks with us about this idea of the flesh of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. We don't have a mediator or a high priest who doesn't understand us. We have a high priest, a mediator who put on flesh. Flesh like we have. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You can't draw near to the throne of grace unless you know the man, Christ Jesus. Because the throne of grace doesn't make itself known to you except through the man, Christ Jesus. The whole world sees the throne of God as a judgment seat. Only His children see it as a grace. That's what we're studying this morning. That's what we're thinking about this season is that God moved into our world in the flesh. He came near to us. And what kind of flesh did He come in? Oh, He's like us, but He's not us. I want to be clear about that. I talked to Aaron about it a little. I spent three days, the last three days, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, puzzling in my mind, concerned, trying to figure out what it means that he is tempted in every way like us, yet without sin, which leads you to ask the question, so could he have sinned? In his spirit, he could not sin. He's God. If he could sin in his if the spirit of him could sin, then the world would cease to exist. So in that way, he could not sin, but could his flesh? Could he in his flesh sin? Did his flesh have a groaning and a yearning towards sin like ours? I don't think it necessitates that biblically. He had flesh like ours. When it says that, I do believe that it means the flesh which Adam had. He is the second Adam. Romans chapter 5 says he is the second Adam. He came to us 
in the form like Adam had. He came not in a pristine, perfect world without sin, but he came into a world filled with sin as an innocent one. In some ways, it makes his grief more than ours. We swim in sin every day as if it's just normal. Jesus was born innocent like our first father Adam without sin and he was dumped into the muck and the mire of this sinful world. Can you imagine the contrast that the Lord must have felt from early time? Can you imagine as a little boy this innocent, beautiful Lord watching as adults backbite and gossip and sin how it must have grieved him could he sin no was he tempted was his flesh tested yes Matthew chapter 4 says he faced temptation we don't even understand after 40 days of fasting with no food and no water Satan himself came and tempted him When's the last time you faced Satan? I've never that I know of. Not in first person. I'm sure I've faced his works, yes, but not him. Not only that, but he was exposed to the cold. He was exposed to tiredness. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He suffered in a world like ours, sinful, yet he was innocent and without sin. How it must have grieved him as through his eyes he witnessed adultery and fornication and backbiting and gossip and thieving. Not just as God, but as a man. Adam never experienced it. Adam lived in an innocent world as an innocent human, and then he sinned and brought sin into the world, so the sin... He never existed in that innocent state in a sinful world. Never. Jesus, in truth, has taken on more than we ever took on. He's experienced more than we could ever experience. So when you're tempted, and when you face sin, and when you fall into sin, you don't draw near to a mediator who has no connection with who you are. You draw to a mediator who has suffered more than you ever suffered, was tempted in ways you could never imagine, and yet without sin. That's the miracle of the incarnation is that God came in flesh, in real human flesh, innocent flesh. The second Adam, he identified with us. He moved into the world with us. John Calvin said this in the Institutes of Christian Religion, book 2, chapter 12, section 1. This is what he says about the incarnation. The case was certainly desperate. If the Godhead itself did not descend to us, it being impossible for us to ascend to Him, thus the Son of God became our Emmanuel, the God with us, and in such a way that by mutual union His divinity and our nature might be combined. Otherwise, neither was the proximity near enough nor the affinity strong enough to give us hope that God would dwell with us so great was the repugnance between our pollution and the spotless purity of God. In other words, what Calvin's saying is the incarnation was necessary because of our vileness, because of our pollution, because of our sin. God gave up glory and came in flesh because of you and because of me. And He didn't stand at a distance. 
He drew near to us. He moved in our neighborhood. Let's don't ever trivialize or make a Hallmark card out of these verses. This is the power of the gospel. Oh, how He loves us. Christian, how long will you run? How long will you run in sin and in rebellion from this God who didn't run from you but ran to you? He was hungry for you. He was cold for you. He was rejected for you. J.C. Ryle said, let us take care that we have clear views of our Lord Jesus Christ's nature and person. It is a point of the deepest importance. We should settle it firmly in our minds that our Savior is perfect man as well as perfect God and perfect God as well as perfect man. If we once lost sight of this great foundation of truth, we may run into fearful heresy. The name Emmanuel takes in the whole mystery. Jesus is God with us. He had a nature like our own in all things, sin only accepted. But though Jesus was with us in human flesh and blood, He was at the same time very God. God moved into our world in the flesh, as we see in John 14, a, a, John 1, 14a. God the Son, Jesus, displayed the glory of God in grace and truth. Look at the second part of verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, second part, we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Glory speaks to us of the weightiness of God. In other words, when Jesus stepped down from the Shekinah glory, from the throne, from where He had existed with God the Father and Holy Spirit from all eternity, He did not give up His Godhead. He moved here with all the attributes of God. You say, now wait a minute. All of them? Yes, all of them. Well, what about omnipresence? Yes, omnipresence. He was bound in human flesh, yet he existed at all places, at all times. He was not severed from God, in other words. He didn't give that up. Omniscience. He absolutely had omniscience. He lets us see peaks of it, doesn't he? Or did you just think it was a magic trick when people were quietly thinking in their heart, rebellion against him, and he said, hey, I know what you're thinking. Or did you think it was a magic trick when he told Nathaniel, behold, one from Israel in whom there is no lying or guile. How do you know me? Oh, I saw you, omnipresence, when you were under the fig tree before you were told about me. I saw you. I know who you are. He, that, that doesn't cheapen the incarnation. That heightens it. Here Jesus is in the flesh and yet fully God. The glory of God was with him. He held that glory in, but it peeked through at places in his ministry. We see this peek through. Particularly, we see it when he's up on the mountain with the three, Peter, James, and John in the transfiguration. He just pulled back the veil for a moment. He let the glory shine through. And they were found on their face. I always think of it this way. He didn't show forth the full glory because we can't handle it. Had he done that, all the world would have laid on its face. How he let it peek through. 
just for a split second when they came to arrest him. Right? And he asked the question, Who is it you seek? And the guard, the armed guard, maybe four or five hundred of them, just fall flat. You wonder how that happened? The glory came through. Just for a split second, and they couldn't handle it. They laid out, they got up, amazed. The glory of God dwelled in flesh. Not just part of God, not just some of who He is, but all of who He is. The fullness, as John will say in verse 16, the fullness has come into Him. As Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1, it pleased God that the fullness of the Godhead should dwell with us in flesh. It's the beauty of the incarnation, the miracle of the incarnation. Listen to the words of the Nicene Creed, one of the earliest creeds that we have in the Christian faith. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of His Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. You see that? He's in one substance with the Father. By whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, and was made man. What was made man? Very God of very God. Light of light. That's what was made man. All of it. Every bit of it. And it came down to us. The Son came down to us, it says, full of glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. The only God, the only one who possesses true glory. He came down in the flesh full of what? Grace and truth. So grace and truth here are married. In John's gospel, the word grace, believe this or not, is true. The word grace is never mentioned again beyond these pas- this passage right here. John never writes the word grace again. After verse, uh, after verse 16, he won't write the word grace again. In John's Gospel, nor will he write it in 1 John. But the reason, I think, is that he's emphasizing grace, not de-emphasizing it. He gives it prominence in chapter 1. Look, it's the emphasis of this passage. He came to us, the Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, verse 16. And from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. So grace is the accented, the emphasized part of this verse. Not truth. Truth is mentioned 51 times in the gospel. The word truth is used 51 times. What does that tell you? Well, it tells me that the glory of God is displayed in grace and truth, and you can't have grace without truth, so he emphasizes for the rest of the book the truth of Jesus Christ so you can receive the grace of God and see the glory that came from heaven to us in the flesh. It's a way of emphasis. Sometimes what we mention less is more important. It's a way of lifting it high. I believe that's what he's doing. It's not a de-emphasis, but an emphasis. Full of grace and truth. Everything he did was gracious and everything he did was true. When I think about his grace, I think about him giving sight to the blind and healing the lame man and raising the dead and giving food to the thousands. I think of him stealing the storm because his scaredy cat disciples can't bear anymore. They're afraid they're going to die. 
and he just simply says, peace be still. I think of his grace when I think of how he related to children. In the Gospel of Mark, we're told that he often laid his hands on children and blessed them. I think of when he's sitting and he calls to himself a child from the audience and said, lest you become like a little child, you cannot inherit the kingdom of God. That's a picture of God's grace. I think about how he loved Mary and Martha. And I think of how he related with Lazarus. As Lazarus lay dead in the grave, he wept. Why? Because he's gracious. Because he's loving. Because he's good. But listen, don't make him Santa Claus. He's not weak. And he's not simply giving. But he's truthful. He is the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to God the Father except through me. He is the truth. His truth displays the glory of God's grace. God moved into our world in the flesh. God the Son, Jesus, displayed the glory of God in grace and truth. God's grace, third, God's gracious revelation through the law is surpassed by the grace revealed in Christ Jesus. And I, I just said something that and you may not identify with at first. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And I said that the grace of the law was surpassed only by the grace revealed in Jesus. Yes, the law is a gracious thing. In Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 and 2, in the prelude to the law, God says, I am the Lord your God, who brought you, who redeemed you from the land of Egypt and your slavery. Now, hear my law. The law is not a legalism. It is a perfect law. It describes for us the character of the perfect God so that we might live in union with Him. So we might obey Him and follow Him and have relationship with Him. The law was gracious. It was good. The law is still gracious and good. Even in the Christian world, as I've told you in other previous sermons, I do not believe we set aside the law. Jesus came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And I believe as the church that we can look to the law, the moral law of God, and see how we should live still in our day. It's given to us as grace. Moses was a mediator. He was a mediator. He stood between God and Israel, did he not? Israel could not go up on the mountain, but Moses went up, and he received the grace of God in the law. But what John says in verse 17 is that the law came through Moses, but grace upon grace. Grace came to us, and truth came to us in Jesus Christ. So it's not that the law is not gracious. It's a gracious word from God to Israel and the church. But rather, the gospel is greater than the grace we received in the law. It's not that the law is not gracious, it's that the gospel is more gracious. 2 Corinthians says to us this very thing. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and 3 and 4, I won't read them all for time's sake. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, we're described the ministry of the old covenant and the way that Moses ministered that covenant with a veil over his face because the glory of God scared the people. They couldn't approach him because he was so glorious in his being after he had related with God. So he put a veil over his face. He covered it. But the Spirit 
tells us in verse 4 through Paul that therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's Word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In other words, the new covenant is not like the old covenant. The old covenant was good, but it was incomplete. The new covenant is complete in Christ. The beauty of the law is fulfilled in the gospel. And Jesus comes as a minister to that, and we are ministers to that gospel. So what does it say? Why is the gospel more glorious than the law? In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing The beauty of the new covenant is that we see the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. God become flesh, and now he embodies the being of God, that we might look at him and see the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ. For what we proclaim in ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He truly is more glorious than Moses. And the gospel is more glorious and good than the law. He's the completion. He's the fulfillment. He's the one who has inherited all of the promises of God. And through Him, we inherit those promises. God moved into the neighborhood He put on flesh to do so. He dwelled with us. He lived with us. He tabernacled with us. Why? So that the glory of God might shine forth in grace and truth. So that the glory of God might shine forth. So we might see the character of God in His face. Because He's more perfect than Moses. Because His gospel is more beautiful than the law. Finally, God is known graciously and truly through Jesus. Verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. No one has ever seen God. But God makes Him known through Jesus. God made God known. And so I close this Christmas sermon saying, How will it be with you? He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. They rejected him. He came full of grace and truth, and his people said, Nah, we don't want that. He came to his own, he found no room, figuratively and literally. He came to his own. And they mocked him and beat him and hung him on a tree. They were so cowardice that they made the Romans do it. How will it be with you? God became flesh. He moved in. He's tabernacling. He's come in the flesh. There's nothing you suffer, nothing you've been through that he has not understood fully. And yet he understood it without sin. And he's on the throne of grace. Will you approach through him to the Father? It's the only way to come. I am the way. 
I am the truth and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one's ever seen God except God, the Son, who was with him, reveals him to them. Peter, what you just confessed, you didn't figure that out on your own. My Father in heaven graciously revealed that to you. Do you know him? Martin Luther, in a hymn, I won't read it all, but in a hymn as we close, I think captures what I'm trying to say. He says in, in this hymn, which I don't think we sing, from heaven above the earth to earth I come. Maybe some of you know it. I don't know the tune, but I know the song because it just strikes me. From heaven above to earth I come to bear good news to every home. Glad tidings of great joy I bring, whereof I now will say and sing. To you this night is born a child of Mary, chosen mother mild. This little child of lowly birth shall be the joy of all the earth. Tis Christ our God, who far on high had heard your sad and bitter cry. Himself will your salvation be. Himself from sin will make you free. He brings those blessings long ago, prepared by God for all below. Henceforth His kingdom open stands to you as to the angel bands. These are the tokens ye shall mark, the swaddling clothes and manger dark. There shall you find the young child laid by whom the heavens and earth were made. Now let us all, with gladsome cheer, follow the shepherds and draw near to see this wondrous gift of God who hath His only Son bestowed. Give heed, my heart. Lift up thine eyes. Who is it in yon manger lies? Who is this child so young and fair? The blessed Christ child lieth there. Welcome to earth, thou noble guest, from whom even wicked men are blessed. Thou comest to share our misery. What can we render, Lord, to Thee? Ah, Lord, who hast created all? How hast Thou made Thee weak and small, that Thou must choose Thy infant bed, where ass and ox but lately fed? Where earth a thousand times is fair, beset with gold and jewels rare, she yet were far too poor to be a narrow cradle, Lord. For thee. Ah, dearest Jesus, holy child, make thee a bed soft, undefiled within my heart, that it may be a quiet chamber kept for thee. My heart for very joy doth leap. My lips no more can silence keep. I too must sing with joyful tongue that sweetest ancient cradle song. Glory to God in highest heaven who unto man his Son hath given, while angels sing with pious myrrh a glad new year to all the earth.